Welcome to part two of a three-part series where we are interviewing the newly appointed CEO of the MGA. And this time we're going to discuss past, present and future of the authority. Going back in time from 2004, 2005, the role of the authority, uh, fast forward 15, 16 years, has evolved. Um, how, how do you see this, this evolution? And do you think it's making the authority more relevant today? Dif just different or less relevant than it was in the beginning? So I, I think in the beginning, the fact that we were the first to regulate in and of itself was pretty much enough. Not just a benefit, but it was enough at the time. Um, and I think, frankly, at the time, the, the, the small team that was at the MGA, at the LGA at the time, did an excellent job in, in setting, in setting the, the foundations for regulation for the industry. As time went by, both with international developments uh, in, in the regulation of gambling itself, as well as other international developments. So you take, uh, we mentioned anti-money laundering. We can mention data protection. There have been so many developments that as a regulator, we have had to grow and mature along with the industry. So the industry has matured and is continuing to mature. And that, that same path is one we had to travel on as a regulator as well. So the evolution that I've seen even from 2014 until today is to a lesser extent, but in the same, in the same uh, kind of path. In, in, when I joined, we were less than 100 people. Uh, we were around, I think, 70. Now we're 180. And we're 180 because... Mostly the, compliance? Yes. Uh, all, in regulatory uh, and taking into account the inspectorate as well, we have over 90 people now. So that's, mm -hmm. half, that's half the MGA. That's focused on, on licensing and compliance, not just compliance. Uh, but obviously licensing, our authorizations team also handles some post-licensing processes. But what is demand like? I mean, you have, you have a number of states which before ex embraced the MGA license. You have Sweden, um, the UK GC now has its own uh, license. Germany is also mulling. How has the role of the MGA evolved to, uh, to, to cater for this less of demand, I would assume, no? Well, overall, insofar as demand for licenses is concerned, we've remained relatively stable, although obviously we have reached a, a saturation point uh, in, in, in Malta. Well, thankfully, most of, of the big licensees are, are based in Malta. Mm -hmm. um, the, yes, it does, it does make a difference when other countries regulate uh, because you can use the Malta license in less countries. But at the same time, we are still, Malta is still a very relevant place of establishment, first of all. And that is one of the things that we as advisors to government will continue to work on. But also as a regulator, we have set our sights on becoming a model, even for emerging jurisdictions. So we speak to jurisdictions in South, in South America, we speak to jurisdictions in Africa, we show them how we regulate, why we do certain things, our thought processes when coming up with regulation. Would, would that lead, so you mentioned LATAM and Africa, so are we anticipating now operators and B2Bs from those markets also seeking multi-license or is it a different... Potentially, but aside from that, it is, it is also about making sure that when an, an emerging market is, opens up to, to licensees already based in Malta, if as a regulator we have a good relationship, even if they impose a national licensing regime, for example, if as a regulator we have a good relationship with the regulator of that country and we have potentially inspired them in the way they regulate, it is still easier for a Malta licensee 
to enter that emerging market. And with COVID, have you seen, you know, DMGA has a lot of bilateral relations, I would assume, with, with a number of states who are mulling whether or not to, to regulate this sector. With COVID, have you seen these relationships uh, maturing um, in the sense are states embracing the idea of finally regulating online gambling? So far, we haven't seen a significant difference compared to the number of interactions that we had before. Potentially, as the So effect, COVID is not really uh, pushing I states over the line to finally I think finally it's premature to say. Because I think the global economic effects of COVID will only be felt later on this year and potentially next year. Uh, currently, the economic effects are being cushioned by government intervention across mm -hmm. across the world. So I, I think potentially the, the incentive brought about by, by the economic effects after COVID will start, we will start seeing the effects of that later on. Moving on to, to the crypto scene. Um, I think it was 2014. Um, you might know more the exact date when the MGA um, approached Veran John to stop accepting crypto as a form of payment or risk losing the license. Fast forward six, five, six, seven years, and you have the MGA um, following the government, obviously, in, in, in initiative to regulate the space. Um, do you think we could have acted before and embraced the blockchain scene or, or rather the crypto scene um, before with operators? I think it's, it's always about making sure that if you are accepting a new form, be it of payment, be it, of, be it a new industry, anything, you need to be prepared for it. So I think we needed to make sure, let me speak as a regulator, not for, for the whole country. As MGA, we needed to make sure that first of all, we assessed what risks were perceived and what risks were real if we were to allow crypto. And secondly, once we identified any real risks, we needed to make sure that we are well equipped to cater for them, both from a regulation perspective and internally as MGA. So while perhaps we may have acted before, I think as a, in general, the ecosystem of the industry required us to take quite a cautious approach. Part of it is obviously because of the banking ecosystem, because it would have been quite useless. And in fact, we are very well aware that our sandbox restrictions make it very, very difficult to, to accept crypto if you are one of our licensees in a very in a viable manner. However, at the same time, we need to balance that out with uh, if we are already aware that, for example, the banking ecosystem is an issue for our operators because partly because of their risk profile as the banks see it, then at that point, we need to be very careful about increasing the risk profile of our licenses by allowing them to accept any amount of crypto. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, it's a balance. I, I, for one, have been personally heavily involved in the, MGA's, in the MGA's initiatives on the front. I am very much a believer in, in blockchain in particular as a new technology, uh, but, even, but even uh, in crypto. Uh, however, that it's, a, it's a balance between several factors so that need to be considered. It's a balancing act, but it seems you can't do much because of the banks. Am I understanding correctly? Because what is the current scenario? Um, we have claimed to be the blockchain island a couple of years ago. What's, what's going on? What can operators do and not do? The banks are one factor. 
Um, so the MGA itself is another factor and making sure that the licensees that apply to use crypto have the necessary uh, risk mitigation measures in place is another factor. So an operator can apply, one of our licensees can apply to us to start accepting crypto. There are a number of restrictions. Those restrictions, such as, such as for example, the, the one that operators complain about most is if you are accepting them without uh, an MFSA licensed intermediary in between, mm -hmm. then there's a 1,000 euro equivalent max deposit limit per month per player. We are aware. So, we but know... still can can be accepted, but with that limit yes, of a but... thousand euros yes. deposit. Yes, and and we are aware, and I personally am aware how problematic that is, uh, and it, it doesn't help to make it viable. It's not viable for high rollers, etc. Because at the moment there is how many licensed by the MFSA? I'm not, I'm not sure. Only I'm only not sure a handful. So okay, that limits a lot the the options for operators, yes. I can understand. The, the reasoning behind that is that if then the, there is a service provider that is licensed by the MFSA, there you is no need through. because we can, we can rely on that, on that regulation. So it's similar to using another, a licensed payment institution, for example. Um, the banks are another factor because uh, again, we know that there is an issue. It is partly it is because of the risk profile of the industry as perceived by the banks themselves and by their correspondents abroad and again this is an issue of perceived versus real risk a lot of it is just perceived but unfortunately that perceived risk by the correspondent banks abroad will influence and make it harder than it already is for licensees to accept uh, to to get a, a bank account if they accept crypto yeah but so an operator has to have banking uh, fulfillments in Malta. No. Can an operator bank overseas? An operator can bank anywhere in the UEA. And that would technically, um, you know, remove part of the issue, you know, because a lot of correspondent banks seem to have an issue with local banks in Malta, but... Not, not necessarily. Not necessarily. Plus, um, oftentimes, if you are based in Malta, although you have the facility of banking abroad, then ideally you do have banking in Malta as well. So it's it's more convenient for operators as well. Yeah, so it does remain a, it an does, issue. Does. And, and what 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 are the solutions are in the on the table? Well, because this has been I'm, with I'm, us. I'm, a, for some I'm aware time. that that government is exploring a number of solutions. Uh, as MGA, what we what we do is first of all we conduct a lot of outreach with the banks. Uh, we understand that part of it is because of their risk profile as well. Part of it is also because of the considerable compliance costs that are involved in banking a high transaction volume business like gaming. But uh, we try to, our outreach with the banks is to explain what we do as a regulator, what the industry does in order to mitigate the risk and how we make sure that they actually do, our operators actually do take those measures. Because a lot of the, a lot of the time, the industry has such complex and, and powerful technological monitoring tools, for example. Uh, that a lot of the risk is mitigated and it's important that the banks understand what mitigation measures are in place because that can affect the residual risk when they look at potentially onboarding a gaming company. Mm -hmm. So this is something that is very high on the MGA's agenda. We have been doing it for a while and we will continue doing it. Um, plus, uh, whenever an, a new and emerging bank uh, explores the possibility of accepting licensees as, as its clients, we always make ourselves available to explain 
the industry, the regulation, the interaction between our licensees and the MGA, how they're monitored, etc. And you personally were heavily involved in the initial phases when uh, the adoption of regulatory frameworks of crypto uh, were on the table. So yes. you were involved back then, we're saying 2017, yes, maybe yes, even yes. before, right? Yes. So it's, I think it's encouraging for the industry to understand that there's a CEO now at the helm of the MGA who was in the trenches uh, three, four years ago. And, and was in the trenches enough to also know how much we do not yet understand as, yeah. as, as MGA and as, as other stakeholders as well. On sports integrity, um, what is the MGA doing? I know there's a number of initiatives to help combat match fixing um, currently. Yes. Can you tell so, us more about that? Uh, last year, we set up a dedicated sports integrity unit we also have a suspicious betting reporting mechanism in place. The obligation was brought into force on 1st January when we had the, the port. The suspicious tool. betting reporting, that's from any, anyone out there or from the operator? What's the operator. From the operator. So our licensees now have an obligation as of 1st January to report whenever they see suspicious betting patterns. And that reporting was brought into force on 1st January when we had the electronic tool on our portal ready. So now they can, they can report it through that. Uh, we have a lot, our sports integrity unit has been very busy and has a lot of uh, data sharing agreements and a memorandum of understanding with sports governing bodies, uh, with other counterparts. Even police force. Forces, no, Chris. Poli police forces, we don't necessarily need data sharing agreements because if it is in the context of a criminal investigation, then we are free to share data. The data sharing agreements are mostly required in order to enable us at law, because of data protection legislation, to share, um, if needs be, personal data to a sports governing body, for example, because the suspicious betting patterns have identified that a player is betting on his or her own match. Yes, and, and you have, you seem to have a, a very good structure when it comes to sports, the sports betting industry, a lot of bilateral agreements as well. Doesn't it become even more complicated then to uncover uh, fraudulent behavior in esports betting? It's yes. very difficult to find out whether uh, a young player in esports is actually engaging in such activity. There, there are there are tools that are, that the, the operators who are very focused on on esports on betting on esports do have tools in place. The added complication is, of course, that there is no single sports governing body um, for for any esports in particular. Um, so, for example, if you take the collaboration that our sports integrity unit has had on traditional sports, uh -huh. we we could always rely on on entities like the tennis integrity unit, for example. Um, or the drafts regulatory authority. We had, we even had assisted in, in convictions um, on on this front, which was a very, uh, very good show of how we can help investigators. With regards to esports, we do have, for example, an MOU with the Esports Integrity Coalition, and we are always more than happy to to help whomever asks for that help. But it does become more complicated, yes. And in fact, one of the things that we did during the pandemic was to warn operators, because obviously esports uh, saw Replaced a boom. sports betting um, for a while as well. Exactly. So, so betting on esports uh, saw a surge during during the pandemic, especially during the various lockdowns. So one of the things we did was to warn our licensees to make sure the the markets that they are offering betting on, because ensuring the integrity of that market is a, a more complex uh, minefield to navigate. Mm -hmm.
has has the regulator ever considered embracing um, software? We're talking AI. Uh, we're talking blockchain. Um, so this this besides the crypto payments that we were discussing before, but embracing new technology um, in order to protect the consumer, you no, know, the the player. I'll I'll answer that on two fronts. So when it comes when it comes to the industry itself. We make sure that as far as possible, our regulatory obligations are objective based. So we, we try not to be prescriptive whenever we can. So we encourage the industry to look into new technologies. It has always been a very dynamic industry and at the forefront of new technologies. And we want to keep it that way because ultimately Malta is, is a, 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 has been a hub for startups um, for, for, for years. Um, although we need to make sure that we continue to foster that startup culture in Malta. Because perhaps we have strayed a bit from from that from that aspect, um, so we always encourage our licensees to be innovative. So that's from the licensee side. From the MGA side, being the regulator of such a, a dynamic and technologically advanced industry, we also look into those tools for ourselves too. Um, so yes, for the protection of players, for example, our player protection directive um, envisages obligations to monitor the behavior of players. It's easier to do that if you have artificial intelligence tools that do it for you, yes. for example. You, you mentioned sometimes we stray from the startup ecosystem that uh, is so important you know, for, the, for the local economy. In fact, sometimes we get the perception that uh, the regulator is holier than the Pope and sometimes over-regulation is stifling growth in Malta. Does this thought ever come to mind? It's always a balance. So yes, we do. Have, we do, do we have the balance? No, I don't think we do at the moment. Um, I think we have focused, rightly so, we have focused a lot on ensuring compliance, but that has meant that we have built our checks um, in, a, in a relatively haphazard way. So perhaps there is a bit too much red tape now around, around those checks. You are, you are actually sort of agreeing that there is a lot of... Um, yes. Over-regulation, I would call it. And, and, and where is this coming from? Is it Manival no, I don't, I don't, piling I don't. up the pressure? Is it Manival has only been a part of it because Manival is only the anti-money laundering part. Um, but in general, we know that as a regulator, we need to continue improving our reputation. And that brings with it compliance. Um, so I, rather than it has come from a good place, and it has, but it has been built over time. And what happens when it's, when it's built over time, as is normal? You need to relook once again at the obligations that you are imposing, at how you are imposing them, and you need to reassess whether the processes still work, whether the processes are sufficient or excessive in achieving your objectives. It's about proportionality. Also, because if we, so I know that the new laws were, were published in 2018, but between 2018 and 2021, the industry has continued developing. So you always need to look at that. We reduce the number of licenses yeah. from, yeah. But that, that was a complete rehash of even how, how the obligations, are, notification requirements, approval requirements, was a complete overhaul. But so nevertheless- the overhaul in 2018, um, you're hinting that there might already be cases of parts of it being redundant and they need to be updated. You always need We're to- talking look. two, three years down the line. Yes, but the industry is extremely, it's always the case with regulation. It's always a struggle for the regulator to keep up with the industry, um, but we need to acknowledge that and we need to acknowledge that in certain cases. Yes, let's look once again at either the laws, our processes or both. Yes, and I mean, way back the MGA or, or rather the government did the right move to 
um, separate the regulatory from the promotional. And the Gaming Malta Foundation was set up. It goes without saying that the two uh, work well together, but I would assume there's also an element of friction at times. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, there's big markets like Asia, like LATAM, like Africa, and I can see Gaming Malta having an active role in uh, going into these markets also to help those 300 licensees or those, those hundreds of companies that are in Malta. But those hundreds of companies in Malta, they want to expand into other markets. And I think the Gaming Malta has an active role to play there. The Malta Gaming Authority, on the other hand, needs to steer away from uh, markets like Asia, where source of funds is a big issue. Um, how do you find, how do you strike the balance between the two? There is, there is no real friction for, for a relatively simple reason. So what, we, what Gaming Malta wants, what the MGA wants, the ultimately sustainable growth of the industry in Malta is one of our objectives in the law. So it's, it's not a, it's not a, a particular situation. So what the MGA wants, what Gaming Malta wants, and what our licensees want is for licensees to grow in a compliant manner. Because that, because that is the only sustainable growth. The industry is a, is a regulated business. It's, it's nowadays the maturing of the industry means that a lot of our operators are, are listed or are so big that they have public disclosure requirements or they perhaps they have bond issues or they will look into them in, in future to fund. So now we're seeing, especially with the, with the mergers and acquisitions that happened in, in past years, we are no longer seeing only small operators that target that, that have a, an innovative product and start targeting a particular market. Mm -hmm. We have big conglomerates, we have giants now. So it's important that the industry grows in a giants compliant way. Giants who are everywhere in, yes. uh, in all markets. Yes, but, but reputation is extremely important to, the, to, these, to these giants, as it is important to the, to the new companies as well, because otherwise you cannot grow sustainably. So we are all looking towards the same end goal. So if, if there are new markets, yes, by all means, Gaming Malta will look into them, will perhaps help operators get there, but only if they can be compliant. In fact, a number of other initiatives the government is taking, I, I was pleasantly uh, very happy about the, one of the recent ones, where um, the government has launched a consultation process to attract digital nomads uh, to the country. When we talk about digital nomads, we're talking essentially about affiliates. Um, I love affiliates. That's my background. I come from an affiliate background and I understand how important this sector is to the industry. You have affiliates, you have operators, B2Cs, and you have suppliers, B2Bs. DMGA has always regulated those two pillars, B2Bs and B2Cs, but never affiliates. Um, what is the position of the MGA on affiliates? And are we embracing the idea that instead of regulating, we're offering a set of incentives for affiliates to come to the island? So when it comes to regulation, the way we look at it is not only whether, whether affiliates are important to the gaming ecosystem. We are fully aware of how important they are. Customer acquisition and retention is obviously uh, one of, one, of the, one of the most important aspects of operating. However, if we are looking towards regulation, then that means that there is something specific that requires intervention. Uh, by definition, regulation is a, an extra. 
the, the default is that you can freely trade without any other restrictions than getting perhaps a trade license. So when there is a regulated business, it's because there are other things that need to be safeguarded over and above. So affiliates are already to an extent indirectly regulated through the commercial communications regulations that we impose on our licensees and through other such codes of conduct. But we will only look towards regulating further directly um, affiliates if we see that there is a reason for that. And obviously we, we are always on the lookout for developments in the industry. We have conversations with operators, have conversations with affiliates themselves. So that is something that we will always that we will always look at. Rather than regulating, we're talking about incentives. Um, are you aware of what's being discussed, and can you tell us? So in incentives, that's not obviously that's not the MGA's area. But as advisors to government, we do uh, then look into what makes Malta an attractive place of establishment for the various for the various pillars, as you call them, of the industry. And I'm aware that yes, government for sure is looking at incentives incentives for talent, both for the industry and for the other pillars, including affiliates. So that is for sure something that government is looking into. Yeah, and just to reiterate, um, we have suppliers who are being regulated and are happy in Malta. We have operators who are happy in Malta. Um, I think to keep strengthening the ecosystem in Malta, it's important to also have um, rubbing shoulder to shoulder as many affiliates as possible Absolutely. who are ultimately responsible for delivering a bulk of the traffic um, to the industry. Uh, moving on to the last question before we delve into land-based front. Um, when it comes to emerging markets, I know we touched upon it in the beginning, but uh, tell us a bit more. What, is, what are the markets where the MGA is looking at working with, uh, maybe in Africa, maybe in Latam, if at all in Asia, and what are the discussions like? So mostly we've had so far discussions directly with counterparts in, in Africa and which, and which in Latin America. Can, can I ask which states? It's, it's, it's quite public. So we've had, for example, I, I don't recall all of them, um, but we've had conversations in Brazil. We've had with um, Kenya, Nigeria, so a number, a number of. Yeah, those are all tier one markets for the regions. And, and as I said, what, what we try to do is we're, we're very open about how we regulate. We're very open about how we see the industry. So the message that we try to, put, to, to get across is, listen, the industry will exist uh, regardless. So what, what you're doing if you don't give regulated operators like our licensees the chance to operate in your markets, what you're doing is you're driving your customers, your players to uh, unregulated business, which is, which is only going to hurt. Which yeah. is only going to hurt yeah. those players. Yeah. So we we explain how we approach regulation and we we make ourselves very available. And how, how do they usually react to it? Because it's it's true. The option is not whether to accept online gaming or not to accept. It's whether you want to regulate it or leave it underground. General, that's that's basically the option. Right? General prohibition doesn't. At least this is a personal never opinion. Worked. Prohibition never worked. And so th then you get the choice that, that you are that you are mentioning. The reactions, I mean, we, they've been they've been very good. We've had very good experiences, even with with European counterparts. So, for example, when Sweden visited us, we had a we had a very productive conversation. So, in general, I think ultimately regulators oftentimes want to achieve the same thing. So, conversations between regulators are normally very productive. Mm -hmm. And do you see an emerging? Emerging states coming out as like like Malta became the hub of online gaming in Europe. Uh, do we see a case scenario like Ghana, for example, a small state in Africa who is trying to emulate what Malta did on financial services 
and maybe in gaming in the future. Do you see a pattern of the sorts happening? Ultimately, it will depend very much on the country that has, I think, the political climate and the, the will to become a hub. Because then it's, a, it's an ecosystem, like we were mentioning. It's not just the regulator, but it is also the country in general, the ecosystem, the incentives that are in place. So it's, it's a whole, it's a whole uh, conglomeration of, of criteria that, that operators will look to to establish themselves in a particular continent. Thank you, Carl. That brings us to an end of the second of three series of interviews where we discussed past, present and future of the authority. Mm -hmm.